Hey, gorgeous lady. How you doing? Hi, beautiful. Uh, I'm fine. How are you? I'm feeling much better. So that's good. good. I'm like at like 90%, I'd say. You sound much better. Yeah. No, no sultry voice. It's gone. Got to deal with this one now. <laughs> I'm not dealing with anything. I get to enjoy your beautiful voice. That's what this is. I adore you. So what's up? How's your week? <laughs> My week turned into kind of a shit show. Oh, fun. I was super excited about like having some time to get shit done. And then my partner oh, no. was like, that's never how that goes. No, no. No. The universe was like, ha 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 ha, you stupid bitch. <laughs> the realness of that. Oh my it's God. It's so real. It's so real. So yeah, my plumbing in my apartment decided to fuck with me oh, yeah. so hard this week. Girl. So water started just randomly backing up into the tub. Mm-hmm. And then in trying to like snake all of the drains, because apparently like the sink drain can cause that, we uh, poked a giant hole in the pipe of our kitchen sink. That's what it was? Yep. We used a plastic snake for the record, like into a metal pipe. There's a huge fucking hole. What the fuck? <sighs> Girl. So yeah, I had to call a plumber $700 later. Damn. Fuck my life. Yeah. Fuck. And the super fixed the tub issue. So that was literally just to replace two parts under the kitchen sink. That was it. That's highway robbery. Fuck. Right? I was like, at least give me a reach around if you're going to fuck me in the ass. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. That was so. I love you so, so much. No, that was incredible. So inappropriate. No, that's why I love you. I love you. So yeah, that was my big exciting week. It was just plumbing issues. I watched like nothing I hadn't seen before and that's it. Yeah. When you go through that, you definitely need like the comfort thing of like, I've watched this 8,000 times and I just, this is my visual soul food, you know, comfort food type of thing. Yeah. Yes. How was your week? Hopefully not as problematic as mine. No. I mean, I was still, still in recovery of like round two. I guess it was some sort of chestal infection. Maybe. I don't know. They're like, "Mm, we don't really know. And I'm like, great. I love this. You're a doctor, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love thanks. this. They're like, here's antibiotics. I'm like, yay, medicine. Yay, science. So I feel much better. Uh, I did get to see several things, which were awesome. One, Saltburn. Totally, oh. totally worth the fucking hype. It's amazing. Is it? Okay. It's fucking I had great. been avoiding it only because I'd heard so many things and I was like, this happens to me all the time where I'm like super pumped to watch something and then I'm so disappointed. It was fucking great. I mean, I understand people's complaints about it is it's quite shocking, even for 2024. Oh, there are scenes that are really like, holy shit. Say no more. I'm sold. Girl. <laughs> Love a shocking scene. Yeah, there's several. It's very visually beautiful. Great soundtrack. Shot well, acted well, very engaging. I really, really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was fucking great. And deserves all the hype. I also started watching True Detective Night Country. Oh, good. So I know we've all been burned by season two. I was going to say, I literally stopped after that. I never got back into it. Same. I did an episode and a half of season two. And then I was like, I think I'm not smart enough to understand what's going on. And then the internet was like, no, this is pure nonsense. I'm like, great. Fantastic. It's not just me. Thank you. It's not just me. So Christina was like, watch this shit. Okay, it's only two episodes so far from this recording. 
And it has like a supernatural element to it. Oh, okay. I'm so here for that. Girl, it's literally what this podcast is like in a series with fucking Jodie Foster. What the fuck? And it very much has the thing vibe. Oh, like John Carpenter's The Thing? Yes. Oh, I'm so in. 100%. That is one of my favorite movies I know. of all time. I've said that repeatedly on this, I'm sure. I know. When I watched it, I was like, oh my God, Amy would be all the fuck about this. Okay. I can't wait. Okay. It's, I might do that today. Yeah. It's pretty great. It's only two episodes so far. Um, Don't fuck me on this, <laughs> true detective. We've already been burned. I heard season three was very good, but I again, I was so traumatized by the two episodes of season two that I was like, I can't do this. I was out. I had no faith in it after that. I love Jodie Foster, though, and I'm so... She's great. That kind of... Yeah. I feel like she wouldn't sign on if it was fucking a hot mess nonsense story, so... For sure. But that's the thing that's very potentially scary about any sort of film or TV project you sign on to. You have no clue what the fuck it's going to be. It's very true. You don't even have control over your performance. The editor does. Yeah. I was going to say, I've listened to enough What Went Wrong episodes yeah. to know that that is the case. Of people being like, that is yep. not the movie I signed up to do or that I thought was I was doing. What the fuck? Especially if they're doing like script rewrites in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Like you've already signed on. You've already signed your contract. Right? You can't fucking back out. And that's the thing. Like at least in a play, and believe you me, I've done more shitty plays than good ones. At minimum, I'm like, this can all be a dumpster fire, but I know that I'm going to be good in this because I have control over my performance. But when you do film and TV, you don't even fucking have control over that. It's fucked up. But I do agree. Jody doesn't fuck around. No. And she's nailing it as per usual. I think you'd love it so far in the two episodes. I'm really excited about this. Okay. It's fucking great. And of course, there's a HBO companion podcast because it seems like that's their jam now for every series. I haven't listened to it yeah. yet. But I'm very excited to to get into that. But you're going to because – Of course. Yeah. Yes. We know you, Monique. Hyperfixation queen. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. And then I also very randomly saw Madonna at MSG. What? Yeah. Okay. How was she? She was incredible. She was fucking great. She's a fucking icon. Okay. Fuck yeah. She was great. She's still the woman that – my mother gave me a talking to about when I was five to not be like that. And I'm like, you know what? Sorry, Maria Elena. Madonna's fucking nailing it. She's fucking great. Right? We would all be so lucky. Girl. To be the Madonna of our generation. Shut the- what? Girl. Yeah. Like, I think I, I was, I think I told you this, that there's a, a bartender at, at a restaurant that I frequent that he's my age, but he has a boyfriend who's like 10 years younger than him. So the boyfriend only knows Madonna like from like TikTok videos. And it's like, no, that is not who Madonna is slash was. She's a fucking icon. Yeah, It was great. It was amazing. Okay. I'm going to admit I'm not the biggest Madonna fan. That's fine. I know she's an icon. I know like her old work. I don't think I've listened to a Madonna song unless it was in a place I happened to be at at the time. Same. In like probably 20 years. Yeah. There's like a couple songs that I, I didn't actively seek out because I was like, I don't really care. I was like, is this like Immaculate Collection? No, I don't care. Like, whatever. Like basically anything after like the late, like early 2000s, I was like, mm. Yeah. So that's also why I never really went to any Madonna concert because I was like, I don't like all the stuff that I really liked. I was kind of too young to go. 
So this was essentially like Madonna's era's tour. Okay. I was just going to say, I'm assuming she played her old hits and this was not just like new music. No, it was like no new music. Oh. Yes. Love it. Which is exactly why the fuck I went. Well, it was more like four people were like, hey, let's go see Madonna on this day. And I know that the closer you get to showtime, people start panicking and they drop the tickets. So, of course, everyone bailed day of. And I was like, okay, like I'm really busy and this is kind of like might be my only opportunity to see Madonna. And especially like I know she's not necessarily doing great health wise. So I was like, okay, I'll just go by myself. And then the single tickets were like, almost double the price of buying two tickets in like a shittier section. Holy fuck. This happens like all over the time because there's a war against single people or at least people who go to things by themselves. So then finally I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to buy two tickets because it's like a $75 difference. What? Yeah. Between me buying a single ticket and two, it was like 75 bucks difference that That's I would pay crazy. more. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to get two tickets and I'm going to try and like find someone so, because I'm like, this is fucking Madonna. And like I asked 20 – I didn't text you because I was like, there literally wouldn't have been enough time for you to get from your apartment to Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Also, then I would have had to tactfully find out how to tell you I didn't want to leave my apartment, which you already knew I didn't want to leave my apartment. Oh, no. 20 people that I asked told me – they're like, mm, I just took my pants off, so no. <laughs> they're not coming back on. I understand it's Madonna, but no. Yep. And it was like – 40 minutes before showtime that someone was like, yes, I'm going to jump in the shower. I'm going to go. And it was fucking great. It was awesome. Good. I love that. Yeah. I'm so glad I went. And I'm one of those people that as sappy as this sounds, like seeing live performances aren't just like a nice thing. It's like a necessity for like my life and inspiration and clarity on my life, which is how I felt watching Madonna. She's an icon. I totally get that. I love that. Yeah. I felt very like empowered after seeing her. She's amazing. That is the power of Madonna. Absolutely. The power of Madonna compels you. Did me. That's for fucking sure. <laughs> I was like, cross yourself. I love it. She loves a cross, girl. She does. Yes. Yeah, it was great. No regrets. Super happy I got to see it. That's awesome. I'm so happy for you. That's so much more exciting than my week. And <laughs> I love you for having things to talk about on the podcast besides plumbing issues. You're fucking plumbing, which is awful. Ugh. It's done. It's over. That's all I care about. Thank God. I was really panicking when it was like going on like day three without a shower. And I was like, I like need to shower. I'm not one of those girls who can get away with that. No, me neither. <sighs> Such a rewarding shower afterwards, though. I'm not going to lie. Fuck Yeah. So yeah, that was my big exciting week. <laughs> Your week sounded way more fun. I, it was this week. Yeah, I would say. It was my reward, I guess, for being sick for two weeks into the three weeks there of the new year. <laughs> it's never ending. Girl, I can't. I get it. I did purchase myself, so I was very excited about, the greatest cat-themed shirt <gasps> I have ever seen. That's incredible. No notes. It's wonderful. It has everything. It has everything. So it's a cat on a tarot card. The card says the cat. And he's surrounded by like UFOs and crescent moons. And he's sitting on top of a book. It's wonderful. No notes. Tens across the board. No notes. I know. Five stars, Amazon. <laughs> Amazing. I love it so much. I also love that now my Instagram feed is just, it's like all these like cat videos. And I'm like, zero complaints. This is incredible. I'm not mad about that. No. Like, I know you're listening to me and that's why, but I'm okay with that decision. 
I love it. Thanks, algorithm. Yep. Absolutely. On that note, do you have a spooky paranormal story for me this week? I sure do. I, you know, it's so funny. I don't remember how I came across this story, but uh, fuck it. Here we are. I'm going to be talking about the Hinton Ampner Manor. So sources, nationalarchives.gov.uk, blogs.bl.uk, nationaltrust.org.uk, the Dark Histories podcast, spookyisles.com, hauntedbritain.com, mysteriousbritain.co.uk, travel.com, thenewyorktimes.com, and Wikipedia. Uh, in case you didn't put together, this is taking place in England. <laughs> it's like we're in Saskatchewan. Yes, UK. On the south coast of England, eight miles east of Winchester, lies the Hinton Ampner Estate. Rebuilt several times over the years, the original Hinton Ampner Estate dates back to at least as early as the Doomsday Book of 1086. The Doomsday Book is Britain's earliest public record. It was commissioned in 1085 by William I and contains the results of a huge survey of land and landholding. Britain... I love how dramatic you are. Girl, I'm going to get into why I told that. the doomsday book. Oh, my God. I got to get into why because I was like, um, <laughs> what? Like, because when I read this, like, there was just like, we're just going to gloss over it. And you're like, excuse me. I'm sorry. You just can't call this that. A doomsday book and then have just like land records in it. You're like, what? No. We're getting into it. It is by far the most complete record of pre-industrial society to survive anywhere in the world. Fun fact, it was called the doomsday book because the decisions in it were seen as final and unalterable, like those of the final judgment. Drama, yes. Britain's like, signed up, here for it. I'll have seconds. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, should we call it the record book? Like, no. No. I've got the name. Doomsday motherfucker. Doomsday book. And they were like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. It's like I got a half chode listening to that shit. Fuck yeah. Publish it. Go. <laughs> Amazing. The estate, along with its surrounding woodlands, were valued at 10 swine, which no conversion calculator for that. So I have no clue <laughs> what <laughs> that is in today's money. <laughs> that seems really light, though. Yeah. How big a swine are we talking here? Because this is like property in 700 acres. What are these swine doing? I don't know. I don't know, girl. Hopefully not eating any dead bodies. Mm, you know what? Maybe that is why they're so valuable. I take that back. Clean up the mess. Yeah, that's right. The original structure burned down during the Tudor period, and the first modern manor house was built in the late 1540s. While no record exists to say who built the new Tudor estate, the manor was described as being E-shaped with two stories, 21 bedrooms, and an attic that functioned as the servants' quarters. In addition to the main home, the 700-acre estate also had an extensive number of buildings and structures on the property. The estate was owned by the Church of England, and in 1597, Thomas Stukeley took over the lease of the manor from the governing body of the Cathedral of Winchester. The house remained in the Stukeley family until the death of Sir Hugh Stukeley in 1719. The estate then passed to his daughter Mary, who married Edward Stawell that same year, thereby transferring the estate to the Stawell family. Mary and Edward lived in the house throughout their marriage with their daughter, also named Mary, and Mary's younger sister, Honoria, until Mary's unexpected death in 1740. Allegedly, 
Edward and Honoria didn't wait till the body was cold to get their fuck on. Because, while of course, there is no way of knowing for sure if they did or they didn't, it was all the talk of the neighboring village, which was further scandalized by whispers that Honoria was pregnant with her dead sister's husband's child. Ooh, not a cute look. But I kind of feel in this time, wasn't that just kind of like, hmm, you know, keep it in the family, you're there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I don't know. I guess people were scandalized anyway. I mean, any sort of like sex scandal is, especially what the fuck else do you got going on in the, you know, medieval times? Kind of nothing. So if you're like, hey, the people in that manor there are like totally getting their fuck on, why wouldn't you talk about it? They didn't have real housewives, which I'm very <laughs> like sad that I'm not invested in because I feel like I'm really missing out on a, like a major cultural moment with the real housewives of Salt Lake City. And I'm just like, don't know what's going on, but everyone's losing their mind over it. Same. I know. I've heard so many people talk about it. I'm like, I don't know who Monica is. I just know it's not me. <laughs> as much as people try to claim that my name is Monica, it's not me. So when a year had gone by and a baby had yet to materialize, rumors began to circulate throughout the village that the couple had murdered and disposed of their child in an effort to keep their illicit affair a secret. And like, not for nothing, shit like that happened all the time in this day and age. Yeah. Rumor's already out, though. Like, you don't need to kill the kid. You know, who knows? All this could be bullshit. All this could just be rumors. Who knows? I don't know. Honoria passed away in 1755, and Edward followed a year later, passing the estate down to his daughter, again, also named Mary. While the younger Mary owned the estate, it remained largely unoccupied for several years, cared for by a few domestic servants who kept the house in running order to accommodate the various guests who stayed during the annual month-long shooting season. And it was around this time, shortly after Lord Edward Stowell's death, that the first ghost sighting was recorded at the manor. In one of the diary entries of one of these hunting season guests, a groom reported seeing the ghostly visage of Lord Stowell wearing a drab coat, walking through the hallways on a bright moonlit night. In 1765, Mary and William Henry Ricketts leased the estate from Lady Stalwell, and moved into Hampton Ampton Manor. William Henry Ricketts was born in Jamaica in 1736. His family had strong ties to the Caribbean island, as his grandfather, also named William Henry Ricketts, there's like four names in the story, but there's like 80 people. There's just, you know. <laughs> no originality. None. Not a Monique in the bunch. No, you know, exactly. No Amys, no Moniques. Clearly... Their lives suck really hard. So his grandfather was a captain who played a pivotal role in seizing Jamaica from the Spanish for the British in 1655 while serving in Oliver Cromwell's army. Oliver Cromwell, who you may remember, was a piece of shit who, among many horrific things, made it illegal to celebrate Christmas in England for 20 years. Fuck that guy. What a dick. And because this was the time period where if you weren't white and European, things inevitably were going to go from bad to worse. In addition to colonizing Jamaica, Captain William Henry Ricketts greatly profited from the transatlantic slave trade and made fuck you money supplying Jamaican plantations with enslaved Africans. Oof. Ugh. Exactly. Captain Ricketts and his wife, Mary Goodwin, again, another Mary, settled in St. Elizabeth, Jamaica with their 11 children. Oh, my God. Girl, no. wait for this fucking story. Only one of their children maintained the family's connection to the island. Following in his father's footsteps, 
George Ricketts became a major general in the Jamaican militia and upon his father's death, inherited the family's 4,000-acre estate in Canaan, Jamaica, complete with almost 300 enslaved people. Now, I don't know if George was a player, but he fucked a lot because George was married three times and fathered 27 children. Oh my goodness. the fuck? His 23rd child, the first William Henry Ricketts that I talked about at the start of the story, and who was the one who ended up leasing Hinton Abner Manor. But before that, he eventually inherited the familial estate in Jamaica, making him a very wealthy man and a good catch for any woman on the island. In 1757, William Harry married Mary Jarvis, a woman of similar pedigree. Her brother John was a Royal Navy Admiral whose distinguished service eventually resulted in him being named Baron of Milford and Earl of St. Vincent. In the early 1760s, the couple settled in Greenwich, England, before moving into Hampton Ampner in January of 1765, along with their two-month-old son, also named William Henry, because, again, there's a lot of William Henrys and Marys in the story. The Brits weren't winning any points for creative names on this front. And they also brought a majority of their domestic servants from their London estate to their new home in Hinton Ampner. And pretty much right out the gate, Mary Ricketts started hearing strange noises at night. And within days of moving in, the entire house was awakened in the middle of the night to the sounds of several doors slamming in unison throughout the manor, which Mary described as, quote, as of people shutting or rather slapping doors with force, end quote. Now, they don't go straight to, this place is haunted. They're reasonable, and they assume someone is in the manor. So the pragmatic William Henry searched the hallways in pursuit of an intruder, but came up empty. The noises continued. Okay, so the call has to be coming from inside the house, and suspicion immediately fell on the servants. It would make sense they were the ones slamming the doors as the household staff kept odd hours. But when William Henry questioned them, all the servants not only denied slamming the doors, but even being awake at that time. When several nights passed and the slamming door noises still continued, Mary then suspected that locals from the nearby village must have been the culprit, that they must have had spare keys to the manor and were letting themselves in to seek shelter from the cold winter nights. So the Ricketts had all the locks changed on the premises, which was no small task seeing as the property housed multiple buildings, not to mention the 21 bedrooms in the manor. Because the thing was, while the sounds of the slamming doors in the middle of the night wasn't settling, they weren't necessarily scary in themselves. Mary and William Henry were afraid for their safety. So all the locks were changed, with the lord of the manor believing this would solve their issue. But not only did the nightly noises continue without explanation, it appears that whatever was going on in the house was just getting started. Six months into their stay at Hampton Ampner, Elizabeth Browsford saw a man in a drab suit, similar to the sighting reported by the groom years earlier, walking through the hallway outside and passing through the doorway into the opposite room. Then Elizabeth started seeing more specters. One night, Elizabeth was in the nursery watching over the sleeping infant. She was sitting across from the open bedroom door when she looked out into the hallway towards the open master bedroom and saw the figure of a man casually walk into that room. 
Despite the fact that the bedroom was usually occupied by the lady of the house, she didn't think much of it. However, later on, when a fellow servant named Molly Newman stopped by to bring Elizabeth her supper, the nurse inquired as to who the strange gentleman was who'd come to visit. Molly didn't know what she was talking about, saying that as far as she knew, no one had come to visit. So the two women went to the main bedroom to investigate, but found no trace of the mystery man. Elizabeth told Mrs. Ricketts what she had seen, and several months later, the gardener's son, George Truner, had a similar experience. He had been crossing the Great Hall on his way to bed when he saw a man in a drab-colored coat at the far end of the room. He initially thought it must have been one of the butlers, but when George arrived at the sleeping quarters and found all the male staff already in bed, he concluded that what he had seen was not of this world. George shared his experience with Mary, and despite knowing the story of the groom's sighting prior to moving into the estate and receiving two separate reports of matching sightings from two of her own staff, Mary dismissed these supernatural claims, chalking it up to lower-class people being more susceptible to superstitions and silly things like ghosts, which, fucking Mary. ouch, Mary. Damn, girl. Yeah. See, that's how you're going to get played really hard. I was going to say, you're going to regret that. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. As the years passed, the noises continued, but it seemed like the ghostly sightings calmed down a bit, and things were generally peaceful in the manor. In 1767, Mary gave birth to another son, who they named Edward, and that summer, the ghostly sightings started up again. One night at about 7 p.m., the coachman, Mary's waiting woman, and two other servants who worked for Friends of the Ricketts all saw a woman by the kitchen. The kitchen staff all heard a woman come downstairs. In addition to her footsteps, they heard the rustling of her stiff silk clothing as she walked along the hall leading towards the kitchen. When they looked out the kitchen door, they all saw a female figure rush out the house. While those in the kitchen only saw her for a moment, they described her as a distinguished-looking, tall woman in dark-colored clothes. Just as the woman rushed out, the cook, Dane Brown, ran in and told the servants in the kitchen that a woman, who, asked for her description, was the same one seen by the rest of the staff moments earlier, had closely walked by her before immediately disappearing. And the workers were aghast. Luckily for them, a man had come into the yard and into the house the same way the mysterious woman had gone out. Surely he'd gotten a better look at her, or had had some intel as to who she was. But upon being asked, the puzzled man replied that he had seen no one. The following year, Mary and William Henry had their third child, a daughter who they also named, three guesses, Mary. Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. There are other names, people. It's, there are other names. Yes. And the year after that, in 1769, William Henry was forced to leave his wife and children and head to Jamaica to tend to some family business. William Henry assured Mary that she and the children would be just fine, and to remember that she wasn't alone, that she had eight of her most trusted and familiar servants there to help care for her, the children, and the estate. He promised to be home as soon as he could, and off William Henry went. And it seems like whatever was at the manor abided by the when the cat's away rules, because basically as soon as William Henry left for Jamaica, things at Hinton Ampner began to escalate. Every night, 
Mary was awoken to the swishing sound of a woman walking through her room in a silk dress. And every time she heard this, Mary got out of bed, searched the room, checked the closets, and double-checked the lock on the door. And every time, Mary found that she was the only one in her locked bedroom. After that, the noises continued to plague the manor and got increasingly worse and harder to ignore. One evening in the summer of 1770, Mary was awakened to the sound of boots walking across the room towards her bed. Mary wrote, quote, I had been in bed half an hour thoroughly awake and without the least terror or apprehension on my spirits. I plainly heard the footsteps of a man, with plodding step, walking towards the front of my bed. I thought the danger too near to ring my bell for assistance, but sprang out of bed, and in an instant was in the nursery opposite. And with Hannah Streeter and a light, I returned to search for what I had heard. There was a light burning in the dressing room within, as usual, and there was no door or means of escape, save at the one that opened to the nursery. This alarm perplexed me more than any proceeding. Being within my own room, the footsteps as distinct as ever, I heard myself perfectly awake and collected, end quote. On February 27, 1771, a maid from the local village who worked for the Ricketts, named Elizabeth, told Mary that the previous evening, she heard what she described as a strange fluttering noise moving around the bed, accompanied by a low groan from the middle of the room throughout the night. Elizabeth tried to find the source of the noise to no avail before attempting to go back to bed. Coincidentally, if you believe in that sort of thing, Mrs. Parfait, the elderly housekeeper who had recently retired and moved away from the manor, had passed away a few days earlier and had been buried in the Hinton churchyard earlier the previous evening. This was a fact that Mary opted to keep to herself instead of share with the supremely and justifiably freaked out maid. Five weeks later, in the early morning hours of April 2nd, Mary, who inexplicably continued to sleep in her bedroom, no, despite having literally 20 other bedrooms to choose from, and because obviously denial is a hell of a drug, we say it all the time, was awakened by what sounded like one or two people shuffling outside her door, walking back and forth in the adjoining lobby. Mary tiptoed out of bed and pressed her ear against the door to see if she could make out who was outside. But after intently listening for 20 minutes, all she heard was the same shuffling of feet. Well, that followed by a single loud noise, which Mary described as the sound of someone pushing strongly against her door, which, terrifying. Her maid, Elizabeth Godin, had turned in early that evening as she was under the weather with a fever. And while Mary normally wouldn't bother the ill woman, she was so freaked out by the sounds and the bang that she reluctantly rang for Elizabeth, who immediately came to and knocked on Mary's door asking how she could be of service. Through the locked door, Lady Ricketts asked her servant if she had seen anyone in the hallway. When Elizabeth said she hadn't, Mary opened the door and the two women proceeded to search the lobby, peering under the furniture and checking the locks on the doors, confirming that they were all still locked. Mary wrote the following in her diary. Quote, After this examination, I stood in the middle of the room pondering with much astonishment when suddenly the door that opens into the little recess leading to the yellow apartment sounded as if played to and fro by a person standing behind it. This was more than I could bear unmoved. I ran into the nursery and rang the bell there that goes to the men's apartments. Robert Camus came to the door at the landing place. 
which door was every night secured so that no person could get to the floor and nest through the windows. Upon opening the door to Robert, I told him the reason I had to suppose that someone was entrenched behind the door, I before mentioned, and giving him a light and arming him with a billet of wood, myself and Elizabeth Godin waited the event. Upon opening the door, there was not any being whatever, and the yellow apartment was locked, the key hanging up and a great bolt drawn across the outside door, as usual when not in use. There was then no further retreat or hiding place. After dismissing Robert and securing the door, I went to bed in my son's room. About half an hour afterwards, I heard three distinct knocks, as described before. They seemed below, but I could not then, or even after, ascertain the place. The next night, I lay in my own room. I now and then heard noises, and frequently the hollow murmur. End quote. So it's finally at this point that Mary's like, okay. Some spooky paranormal shit is going down in my house. But she mostly kept this to herself and instead opted to sleep in her son's room that summer because it appears that the phenomena was most active during the summer months, keeping her awake at night. That's interesting. I wonder why. Yes, I agree that it's interesting because it kind of reminded me of of when I did the Christmas ghost story. Yeah. That it was like in December, like when it was around Christmas, it's like that's when shit got like really real in this one dude's house. So I don't know. I don't know why this is happening very specifically uh, more so in the summer. When Mary finally did return to her own room, she added a small bed so Elizabeth could accompany her and sleep in the room with her. In addition to all the other wild ass noises going on throughout the house, the following summer, the two women started hearing the sounds of softly spoken, disembodied voices engaged in conversation throughout the night. No. No. Girl, I fucking know. Also, like... I fucking know. You didn't believe us because we were lowly servants and of mm-hmm. lesser intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now I have to sleep in your room because you're scared of the ghosts? Like, fuck you. Absolutely not. Girl. In Mary's diary, she wrote, quote, They began before I went to bed and were heard till the broad day in the morning. A shrill female voice would begin, and then two others with manlike tone seemed to join in the discourse. Though this conversation sounded as if close to me, I never could distinguish words. End quote. Every morning, Mary would ask Elizabeth if she had heard the same thing. And every morning, Elizabeth would describe hearing the exact same muffled conversations. Ugh, that sounds so annoying, though. Like, I'm just trying to fucking sleep. Can you guys shut the fuck up, please? Okay, that's literally my whole thing with this. I'm like, if you want to fucking go to town during the day when I'm up, go for it. And I am someone that when I am sleep deprived, I'm my most miserable and awful that I will ever be. You can starve me for days. But if I am sleep deprived, I am a fucking terror. Like, I would not be doing great in this. No. Like, at all. I would honestly not even give a fuck about, like, the poltergeist. I'd be like, just shut the fuck (laughs) up so that I could get a solid seven hours. Please and thank you. Do whatever the fuck else you want to do during the day. I just need to get, like, a nice seven hours. Yes. I know you're not supposed to engage them, but I wouldn't be able to resist. I would have to scream at them to shut up. Absolutely. I would change my sleeping schedule. Like, I would sleep during the day, and I would be up at night because I'm like, I'm not dealing with this fucking shit. This is ridiculous. For sure. In what may be, in my opinion, 
the most valid evidence of a haunting, even the fucking animals were freaked the fuck out. Always trust the animals. Always trust the animals. Mary wrote, quote, I had frequently observed in a favorite cat that was usually in the parlor with me, which, I mean, who among us doesn't have a favorite cat, obviously. Yeah. And when sitting on table or chair with accustomed unconcern, she would suddenly slink down as if struck with the greatest terror, conceal herself under my chair, and put her head close to my feet. The servants gave the same account of a spaniel that lived in the house. End quote. Mary, you in danger, girl. Yeah. Just saying. Get the fuck out. Get the fuck out of here. And like, I get it. Like, you don't have money, even though you're rich, because it's like the patriarchy and medieval times and shit. But like, figure this shit out, girl. Get a priest in there. At the very least. And here's the thing. Like, this is church property. Like, there's a church on the estate. I'm like, get the fucking deacon in here to priest party this motherfucker. I don't understand. Like, and maybe they did and it's just like we don't have records of it. But if they didn't, Mary, you dropped the ball, girl. Yeah. Like, just saying. I'm not victim blaming here. But like, literally, there's a fucking church on your fucking property. Just saying. It's there for a reason. Give it a shot. You know, worst thing, nothing else. You're in the same same spot. spot. You know what I mean? Mary continued to hear more unsettling noises, like the sounds of gunshots and of her curtains being pulled open. Girl. She's just cash. She's like, it's the the conversation and the gunshots again. Like, ooh. You know, all noises that Elizabeth had also confirmed hearing. Luckily for Mary, her older brother, the Royal Navy Admiral, John Jarvis, had recently returned from the Mediterranean and had taken Mary up on her invitation to visit. But she didn't let her brother in on the fact that she hadn't slept in months because her home was being terrorized by ghosts. I, You know what? I kind of get it. I feel like I wouldn't either. Especially because I'd be like, I just want to see if they experience it and then bring it up to me yeah. without any sort of influence. Prompting. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So – Mary is of exactly the same mind. So after John had spent a few nights at Hinton Ampner, Mary was curious to know if her brother had heard any of the things that go bump in the night. But rather than outright ask him for fear that she would be seen as a silly woman who believed in ghosts, she was sly about it and casually mentioned to him the noises that the servants had heard the previous night. Wink, wink. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those silly servants always hearing noises. I mean, right? I don't know. You know, it's just they're like lower class. It's a thing, right? But John told his sister that he didn't hear anything and that he had just slept just fine. She was probably so pissed. Oh, absolutely. John had to go to Portsmouth for a week. And basically the second that he left, the terrorizing noises started up again. So I just think these ghosts hate women is kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. Literally, like, the second her husband leaves, it's like, ha-ha, bitch. And then her fucking, her brother leaves, and it's like, thought we were gone? Nah, bitch. i get him back. I'd be like, you live here permanently now. I'm so sorry. I have to get a good night's sleep. Thank you. I know. That night, Mary and Elizabeth were bolted awake by what sounded like cannonballs rolling in the hallways, which is not quiet. When the thunderous noise stopped, it was replaced by a deafening shriek that rang out four or five times that night. Like, I just... This is a nightmare. 
it actually is a nightmare. Like I, I would literally at this point be like, I don't actually care. This is haunted. I just need to sleep. I can't do this. When Mary asked Elizabeth if she too had heard it, the nurse was so frightened, she literally couldn't speak. Hannah Streeter, the servant who looked after the children and stayed in the room, had apparently heard the rolling noises and the shrieks and was, quote, so appalled that she lay for two hours almost deprived of sense and motion, end quote. Damn. So Mary's like, okay, I definitely shouldn't tell my husband what's going on because that would be a bad look for me because one, he's a skeptical, pragmatic man, so he's probably not going to believe me. And two, it's not like he can really do anything because he's been gone for literal fucking years at this point. But Mary decides that she's going to come clean about all the poltergeist activity that's been going on with her brother once he gets back from Portsmouth. And because of fucking course, John gets held up and his return back to Hinton Ampner is delayed by a week. So during the waiting week, Mary's finally like, fuck this, and moves bedrooms, hoping that she can get some rest because the months of sleepless nights is really taking its toll. I would just get like blackout drunk or something like where I would just, I would have to sleep. Like, I don't know, something, some laudanum, like. Yeah, I would definitely take some desperate measures because this is years that this bullshit's been going on. John finally makes it back to Hinton Apner, and Mary spills the tea, revealing everything that she's been through over the last few years. And apparently, John took the news surprisingly well. She told him that she desperately needed someone to confirm that she wasn't crazy or imagining things, and John offered to check the house out. Not only that, he called in for reinforcements. Family friend and fellow Royal Naval officer, Captain James Luttrell, happened to be visiting, and he agreed to spend the night at the Gothic Manor and investigate the house with John and his servant, John Bolton. Because apparently there's also just like 80 Johns in this. Like, Again, there's like five names, I think. Yeah. I think so. There's so many people. Like there needs to be like a flowchart or some <laughs> shit because it's, you know. The three men searched the manor top to bottom. They searched every room and hallway. All the doors were locked and the attic rooms were empty. John went to bed as John Bolton and Captain Luttrell offered to take the first watch shift in the next room. Mary laid down to sleep when she heard the familiar noise of a rustling silk dress by her door. She bolted up and asked Elizabeth if she had heard the same, which she had. The two women then booked it to Captain Luttrell's room to tell them what they had heard. The captain informed them that he had heard the footsteps of a man walking across the lobby. And as soon as he had heard it, he immediately opened the door and called out, who goes there? And that when he did, he felt an invisible force dart past him. John Jarvis also heard the footsteps, so the two naval men went about investigating the house. And when they did, they heard a variety of frightening sounds including that of disembodied footsteps angrily stomping up and down the stairs, as well as the sounds of various doors being opened and violently shut, including the front door, which slammed closed with such force that the 21-bedroom manor shook. The men continued to hear groans and other alarming noises throughout the night. By daybreak, the two naval officers declared the manor unfit for human habitation, and Mary sent a letter to the landlord requesting his presence at the manor at his earliest convenience. But seeing as how it was 1772, the landlord had gout, 
So he sent his 15-year-old clerk to the manor instead. And Mary's like, fuck you. I'm not going to tell some 15-year-old that I want out of my lease because the house is haunted. Get the fuck out of here. Although realistically, like 15 at this point, he's probably like married with like four kids and shit. Middle age. Exactly. He's like writing as well because he has like, you know, he's in like the twilight of his life. So she sent the teenager away with the hopes of speaking with the landlord at a later date once he got a handle on his gout, which I love how when Atkins was the thing, like everyone was getting gout because you can't do that. You can't just like eat meat and like not have a vegetable and not have water. So a week went by and John stayed and kept his nightly watch. And the poltergeist activity seemed to have calmed down until one night, Mary was awoken by the sound of a gunshot followed by the sound of man groaning in anguish that echoed throughout Mary's bedroom. The moan stopped and everything was quiet, when suddenly the sound of a great weight crashing through the ceiling was heard. And that was it. Enough was enough. Mary knew that she had to get out of the house. John wrote Mary's husband in Jamaica saying, quote, The circumstances that I'm about to relate to you, dear sir, require more address than I find myself master of. It is easy to undertake, but difficult to execute a task of this delicate nature. To keep you longer in suspense would be painful. I therefore proceed to tell you, Hinton House has been disturbed by such strange, unaccountable noises from the end of April to this day, with little or no intermission, that is very unfit your family should continue any longer in it, end quote. Further writing, quote, you will do me the justice to believe that I have, during the short space this event has been made known to me, employed every means in my power to investigate it. Captain Luttrell and my man John sat up the night after it was imparted. And I should do great injustice to my sister if I did not acknowledge to have heard what I could not, end quote. He went on to explain that while the children, luckily and somewhat shockingly, were unaware of what had been going on in the house, which I think is kind of bullshit, I don't know. I slept very deep as a child. Like, I literally slept through a fucking tornado and a hurricane, which <laughs> tornadoes supposedly sound like freight trains. I don't know because I slept through it. Fair enough. So I'll chalk it up to that. And also, th- this is like a fucking medieval manor. You know, this is like made of like fucking stone and masonry and shit. Like, yeah, the man I'm saying, his apartment is like was made like in the early 90s. So it's like concrete. And you can't hear shit. You cannot hear the next the neighbors next door. You can't hear anything, which is that's great. Pretty great in New York City. Just saying. Yeah. Mary, on the other hand, was suffering tremendously, and he was certain her health would be restored once she got out of that house. And just like that, the rickets were out of dodge. Over the next several years, the house was leased to several tenants, and while none of those tenants ever documented any paranormal activity. It is interesting to note that none of them stayed at Hinton Abner for an extended period of time. The servants, on the other hand, reported several disturbances at the manor house following the Ricketts' departure, the best documented being that of the coachman, Robert Camus, who wrote to Mary several times to tell her how his sister and mother had both heard noises at the house during their daily visits to open the windows and air out the rooms. Loud noises that rolled throughout the house like thunder and the sound of a man groaning in agony, just as Mary had heard. And just like Mary, whenever they tried to come up with a source for these sounds, neither they nor anyone else in the home could come up with an explanation. Not only that, the staff reported encountering two apparitions after the Ricketts moved out. One was of a lady in white, 
seen wandering the halls, seemingly in a state of constant despair. The second was a sinister figure of a man in a long black coat, who mostly stuck to the shadows, but was occasionally seen walking up and down the stairs. So, what the fuck? Where did all these ghosts come from? There might be an answer. Of course. Of course Monique found the answer. (laughs) Girl, again, this was one of those that was like maybe like a three-page, like everywhere story. And then I was like, well, what what else is going on here? What's the doomsday book? You know, so – this is just too relatable to me as a person. <laughs> and that's why I adore every you. Time. Every time. That's like me. You. That's like me being like, I'm gonna do OJ for a hundredth episode because that'll be easier to do. Twenty-one <laughs> pages of eleven point font later. So the estate was eventually inherited by Henry Stawell Bilson Legg, who in seventeen ninety-three tore the old Tudor Manor down and rebuilt the house in the Georgian style of plain yellow brick. Allegedly, during construction, workmen discovered a small box hidden in the floorboards. In the box was a tiny skull, one that could have belonged to a baby, seemingly confirming that, yes, Lord Stalwell and his sister-in-law had engaged in an affair that produced a love child that did not survive. Researchers also believe that the two apparitions who appeared to be causing the nightmarish activity in the house were that of Lord Stalwell and Honoria, who could not rest in peace due to the guilt of their affair and the death of their child. Okay, so, a lot of wild shit, but obligatory devil's advocate time. A number one question. Were the rickets simply being fucked with? So, John Jarvis, Mary's brother, was a family friend of Catherine Mary Howard's parents. Catherine Mary Howard published a memoir in 1838, which features one of the earliest published mentions of the Hinton Ampner haunting. In it, she recalled a story that claimed that an old gardener, long attached to the house, gave a deathbed confession claiming that he conspired with Mary's maid to scare Mary and drive her out of the property by making noises using a subterraneous passage running under the manor, because he preferred living alone in the manor, which, same, I get it. I like being alone. British author, full-time skeptic, and it seems like all-around wet blanket, Trevor H. Hall believed underground water and seismic activity were the main causes of the strange noises experienced by the rickets. Not only that, the winters in the area in the 1760s through the 1770s were particularly severe, which could account for some of the noises and creaking, wood expanding and contracting and whatnot. Then there's the story of the alleged small buried box and its alleged contents. In Mary's own writings, she told of how, in 1769, shortly after William Henry sailed to Jamaica, an old man living at the local poorhouse had visited the manor and told Mary about how his wife had told him that in her youth, a friend of hers who had been a carpenter had been called up to the manor to pull up some floorboards in the dining room so that the owner, one of the Stokely family, could conceal something underneath that the carpenter assumed was treasure. It was very optimistic of him. Yes. (laughs) But apparently, this was a common thing that beggars would do at the time. They would go to a house, tell some sort of fantastical story, and then you would give them food or money for providing entertainment. That being said, a letter included with Mary's narrative written by Osborne Markham Esquire, the son of the Archbishop of York and a British politician, stated that when the house was pulled down in 1793, 
a small skull was found under the foundations of the Tudor Manor. Apparently, the skull was initially identified as that of a monkey before later being suggested to be that of a small baby, possibly in an attempt to link Mary's story to the Edward Stawell Honoria scandal. Either way, this part of the story was never followed up on and was never brought forward for any official inquiry. So, devil's advocate of the devil's advocate. Catherine Mary wrote everything she knew about the haunting of Hinton Ampner through third-party resources because she never actually visited the home as it had been demolished by the time she found out about it. As a result, she gets a lot of the facts like people's names and relationships wrong, and Catherine Mary eventually admitted that supposed deathbed confession was written purely on hearsay. Not only that, Mary had always insisted that it would have been impossible for anyone to have played tricks on her. Her servants were long-term employees whom she had brought with her from London. And when they were replaced by locals, Mary always ensured that they were well-educated and from families with good local reputations. And in a letter to her husband, reiterated that not only was she on very good terms with the neighbors and locals, but that she had received the greatest friendship and attention from everyone in the area. You could possibly... Take that to be that the lady doth protest too much and that everyone fucking hated yeah. her. They'd be like, no, everyone loves me. Everyone like, loves me, though, I swear. Um, like, no. But it is interesting to note that during the Ricketts' tenure at Hinton Ampner, the local church pinned a notice on their door offering a reward of 50 guineas to anyone who could provide the vicar with any information as to who was making the noises in the mansion house occupied by Mrs. Ricketts as well as immunity and the same reward of 50 guineas to any accomplices willing to turn in their partners in crime to officials. Despite the reward eventually being raised to 90 guineas, no one ever came forward and no information was ever received. And I imagine, especially like in medieval times, like this is a fuck ton of money. Somebody would have, yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised nobody came forward just to like straight up lie. For yeah. sure. Okay. That's very suspicious. Yeah, exactly. As for Trevor H. Hall's claims that the noises were the result of underground water, that doesn't explain the multiple sightings corroborated by multiple people throughout the Ricketts' stay. And, like, I also think that it's kind of interesting that there was running water underneath the estate because it has been suspected that places that have, like, water, like, area, like large bodies of water are kind of like a conduit for paranormal activity. Yes, that is true. Interesting. Mm-hmm. As for the box... I don't think we'll ever know for sure about that one. So it's kind of one of those choose your own adventure details. Obviously, it's way cooler if it's real and that there was like a baby skull in there. I mean, it's obviously terrible like if a baby died, but it makes for a better story. Mary's account was published in the Gentleman's Magazine 100 years later in 1871 and as a result became known as one of Britain's best known historic hauntings. Not only that, it has been speculated that the ghostly goings-on at Hinton Ampner, and specifically Mary's account, may have also served as inspiration for Henry James's 1898 gothic horror novel, The Turn of the Screw, first published as a 12-part serial in Collier's Weekly, meaning that the haunting of Hinton Ampner was a real-life gothic horror story a hundred years before that even became a thing. That's awesome. Yes, which I love. I'm obsessed with. The current Hinton Ampner House was built in 1793 and remodeled extensively in 1867. 
after the house passed to the Dutton family in 1803. In 1935, Ralph Dutton commissioned architects Gerald Wellesley and Trenwith Wills to restore the manor to its Gregorian appearance. The estate was badly damaged by a fire in 1960, but Dutton once again had it restored. Because Ralph Dutton had no direct heirs, he gifted the estate to the National Trust, Europe's largest conservation charity, after his death in 1985. Because it is now owned by the National Trust, you can actually visit Hinton Ampner. It is open every day until 4 p.m., and while the ghostly activity appears to have subsided since the construction of the Neo-Georgian house, it's probably worth a visit if you're in the area anyway, as Hinton Ampner Garden is widely considered to be one of the great gardens of the 20th century. And that is the story of the first known real Gothic ghost story, The Haunting of Hinton Ampner Manor. I loved that. Right? Also, so impressed that you said the name of that manor so many times. I'm not even going to try to say it. It was such a tongue twister. <sighs> it was emotional. It was a lot. I was like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I could keep doing this. <laughs> I'm impressed just from that, but I really enjoyed that story. You know I love a classic ghost tale. Me too. And even better if it's a gothic horror story. Girl, like, and this is like 100 fucking years before the genre existed. I love it. I that was know. so good. Thank you so much for that. Of I'd course. I'd never heard of that before. Me neither. What the fuck? What the fuck? And like, for those of you who don't know, um, Turn of the Screw is what inspired The Haunting of Bly Manor, which I know like not everyone loved, but I did. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Look at so, that. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. that information. And that's exactly what it is. You're in a big gothic castle. Crazy shit's happening. Yeah. Nightmare. And you're not sleeping. So fuck all of it. Literally. Yeah. Exactly. I don't get the not getting a priest in there when you live on church grounds. Yeah. He's literally your He's next door. Right Go knock on the door and just be like, hey. Hey, homie. You know, for shits and giggles, can you come like say a prayer? Same rules apply. Like give him like a, you know, muffin basket or whatever the fuck, you know, like. Yeah. And be like, hey, like for your troubles. Thanks. I, I'm pretty sure you don't have a coconut, but like priest party at least. Something, you know? Yeah. Again, it could have happened. I didn't find anything that said that, which. I feel like you would have mentioned that. Yeah. She seemed very descriptive about everything else. I feel like you would throw in the fact that you had a priest and it didn't help. Nothing changed after that. Yeah. It seemed like the only thing was like, we need men to be in this house because that's usually when it calms the fuck down. And for it to be like, oh, you silly woman. Nothing's happening. You and your ghosts. Yeah. Until the brother and, and it was like, they're like, oh, you call down the thunder and it's fucking here, motherfucker. Let's go. Yeah. It's not fucking around now. So, yeah. Haunting of Hinton Ampner. Also, I just feel like those letters should not be where they are in those words. No, I feel like that's a, a dyslexic nightmare. Oh, my God. Even if I was familiar with the story, I would have rejected it just for having to say that a million times. Well, that's those things that like you write it down and I was like, mm, this is going to be a struggle. And then you have to say it like 80 times. You're like, why did I do this to myself? I hate my life. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of did that to myself for this story. Oh, great. Story so we're not week, alone. So. Psychic sistering as always. So as not to make the mistake that I made last week where I mispronounced Tana's name for half of the episode, I wrote it phonetically <laughs> in the story this time. So hopefully, fingers crossed. I can't wait. And on that note, let's fucking get into it. Let's go. Dive in deep. So I decided to go super rogue this week. Oh, I love it. 
I know. I was hoping you would. I always do. Because Johnny told me the story and I was absolutely fascinated. Then, like we do, I started looking into one detail from the story, which led me to another really interesting story. Mm. So not only am I going rogue, I'm doing it twice because <gasps> I'm getting two stories this week. Fuck yeah! Because one is on the shorter side. So Love it. Sources, medium.com, Daily Mail, Lit Hub, India Times, New York Post, Smithsonian Magazine, NPR.org, The Mirror, Gizmodo, and good old Wikipedia. Also, there were just some things that I like randomly Googled the answer to. Sure. So random Google Doomsday searches. Books. Yeah, it, it would have been fucking <laughs> like 400 sources if I really included all of them. I, Girl, I hear you. You know the struggle. I know. <laughs> it is real. It's severe. <laughs> the hyperfixation, I can't. <sighs> Why are we this way, Amy? It's the ADHD. <laughs> yes. Yes. So today we're going to talk about tigers. I know. I'm obsessed with cats. I'm sorry. And specifically, we're going to talk about some man-eating tigers. Fuck yeah! Because while tigers don't typically attack humans, they have been known to attack and kill people for food, especially if they're injured, old, weak, or if their regular prey becomes scarce. Mm -hmm. And it's rumored that once they get the taste of human flesh, they become addicted to it. Mm -hmm. Though personally, I think it's more likely that they just realize that most of us are far easier prey than what they usually hunt. 10,000%. Yeah. Yeah. We're not like peak physical fitness. We're like, no. fuck. Like, no. Easy as fuck. Did yes. a, this or like a caribou or something? No. Like, they're like, no. a person's way easier. Exactly. Yeah. Since they usually prey on large ungulates, aka mammals with hooves, and have no problem taking down a one ton water buffalo. So, mm-hmm. compared to that, like, <laughs> what are you, a puny human? No problem. Yeah. You're like, what? You're like 140 pounds? Fuck you. Yeah. Two, you're bipedal? What? Like, give me a challenge, bro. What the fuck? Tigers also have been occasionally known to hunt and kill other predators, such as leopards, crocodiles, and bears. And while they don't usually attack prey as large as elephants and rhinoceros, these rare events have been recorded. Mm-hmm. So compared to that, humans seem like the animal kingdom's equivalent of fast food. <laughs> if yes. I'm being real. I mean, yeah, facts is facts, man. But according to Dane Hucklebridge, the author of the book, No Beast So Fierce, tigers seem to have an ingrained fear of humans and will generally change direction at the first sign of a person rather than seek an aggressive confrontation. I mean, literally same. That's like every woman's <laughs> life. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> Changing direction out of here, right honestly. now. I do not want an aggressive conversation. Definitely not. this bro at this fucking bar. I'm just going to go. <laughs> That being said, though, in India throughout the late 1800s, tigers are responsible for an average of 1,000 deaths annually. Holy shit! Yeah. That's way more than I thought. Yeah, which to be like, they don't usually eat humans. That's a lot of people that are eaten by tigers. I thought it'd be like, you know, one a year or some shit like that. No. Fuck, a thousand? That's a lot. Girl. I know like there's like a billion people in India, so like per capita, it's like mm, not a ton, but that's still a lot. That's a lot. I wasn't prepared for that number. Oh, you're not prepared for any of these numbers. Is it super fucked up that I'm like smiling with my hands in the air? Yes. I love it. I'm into it. I get it. (laughs) I love it. But yeah, she is super pumped about it and you guys should be too. 
I, I, I told you I was absolutely fascinated with the story. How could you not be? There was a five-year period in the 1930s where they claimed a total of 7,000 lives. Holy shit. Yes. Tigers alone. Like, that's insane. At the very beginning of the 20th century, there was one tiger that was responsible for one of the largest human killing sprees by a single animal ever recorded, which leads us to the story of what became known as the Chumpawit Tiger or the Demon of Chumpawit. The Chumpawit Tiger was a female Bengal tiger believed to have been born sometime between 1895 and 1897, during a time when trophy hunting was exceedingly popular and hunters primarily targeted tigers. Then, sometime around the year 1903, the tiger began attacking humans in Rupal, a small village in western Nepal. The residents quickly noticed a sudden increase in the number of people disappearing in the forest, and the attacks became so frequent that they were convinced that there must be more than one tiger attacking them. But Bengal tigers are typically solitary animals and fiercely territorial, so it's rare for more than one to hunt in a particular region. Tigers are also primarily nocturnal and usually hunt at night when the temperatures are cooler and their prey is less alert. However, it's more accurate to describe them as semi-nocturnal since they are first and foremost hunters of opportunity. So if the chance for a kill presents itself, they will take it regardless of the time of day. However, all of the Chumpawitz tiger's kills happened in daylight, and most of the victims were women or young girls who ventured into or close to the forest to collect fodder for their cattle. The attacks came without warning. At most, there would be a slight rustling of the tall grass before the tiger would pounce. Female Bengal tigers weigh anywhere from 240 to 400 pounds, and 60 to 70% of their weight is pure muscle. They can run up to 40 miles an hour for short distances, and according to the American Museum of Natural History, can jump up to 30 feet in the air. Holy shit. This is like real Jurassic Park, but tigers. Yes, they are the definition of an apex predator. Bengal tigers also have the longest canine teeth of all of the cat species, ranging from three to four inches long. Damn. Which, get a ruler and look at how long that is because it's actually insane. Like, my middle finger is just under three inches long. Fuck. It's wild. Every Bengal tiger also has a unique pattern of stripes, much like a human fingerprint which helps them camouflage in the tall grasses while hunting for prey. And they have hypertuned ears that can hear the swallowing of saliva and the whistling of breath through nostrils. Oh my God. That's so scary. So just imagine going about your day, minding your own business, then suddenly being attacked by all of that. The tiger's claws would shred its victim's flanks before its powerful jaws would snap their neck. And in seconds, it would be over. At least there's that. Yeah. I'd be like, thank for, I like, I'm like, I can't, I can't do this like for like 20 minutes. Like if you're going to do this, just could it please be quick? Thank you. Oh my God. Yeah. Don't play with me like a house cat would do where they just kind of like no. bat it around and keep continuously. Ca- no, just end it quick, please. Snap my neck, please. Thank you. As the death toll continued to rise, the countryside became paralyzed. Men refused to leave their huts for work after hearing the tiger's roars from the forest and the villagers became refugees in their own homes. Fun fact, a Bengal tiger's roar can be heard up to two miles away. Damn. And that's not even counting like if the wind carries it and shit. Right? I thought that was fucking crazy. Yeah, fuck. 
There were several attempts to hunt the tiger down, but she was much more intelligent and cunning than any tiger they had encountered before. Also, to be fair, I'd be like, maybe homegirl's pissed because we've been hunting all these tigers. Oh my God, Monique, kind of on the nosy on this one. I was like, maybe we should just like make an altar to this tiger and like get like a big like ball of yarn or some shit and be like, so sorry, our bad. Here you go. Right? Honestly, I would start slaughtering livestock and leaving livestock out for it. Absolutely. Or I would just go everywhere with like a fucking goat or something. Yeah. Be like, this is for you. Yeah, I brought this for you. I'm going to leave. Thanks so much. Their attempts failed, however, and her reign of terror continued. The number of fatalities eventually became so high that they literally called in the army. Because, believe it or not, by this time, there had been 200 confirmed human kills by this one tiger. I'm sorry. That's This is kind of bamf. I know. Because it's kind of like, I'm sorry, you come into my motherfucking house and do this? Right? Like, I was here first. Yeah. Thanks. I've been here for like at least 12,000 years. <laughs> you like just got here. Yeah. And you're going to you're gonna pull this shit? No. It's like someone needs to teach you what's what. Correct. And I volunteer as tribute to be <laughs> the teacher. I'm going to show you what you're fucking with. Yeah. The Nepalese army, along with hunters and local volunteers, formed a massive hunting party determined to get rid of the threat once and for all. But they were ultimately unsuccessful in capturing or killing it and only managed to chase her across the Sharda River into India. And they were just like, fuck it. It's India's problem India's problem. problem. (laughs) Bye. And unsurprisingly, the tiger continued to hunt humans, now in India's Kumaon district. Her behavior became more like a Siberian tiger in her habits, and she created a larger territory to encompass multiple villages in the area, although most of the attacks were concentrated around Champawat, which is how she became known as the demon of Champawat. Once people began disappearing, and it was clear they were dealing with a tiger with a taste for humans, India also launched several attempts to hunt her down, with hunters being offered considerable rewards to kill the man-eater. But again, this tiger was fucking smart. She operated with what was later described as, quote, almost supernatural efficiency, end quote. She would adjust her hunting strategy so as to best hunt for new victims as well as evade her pursuers and would travel great distances between villages after every kill. Not going to lie. I feel like this is like a crime against like, I mean, it is like a crime against like nature to like kill like such a magnificent specimen. It's like, okay, one, it's a tiger. It's incredible. Two, it's like, this is like the HBIC. Badass tiger. Yeah. Yeah. She's killing a lot of people. But like, like. Was anyone being like, okay, you got to respect Amy. I fucking love you. I fucking (laughs) love love you. you. My God. Psychic sisters. Yes. Because you do. You're like, fuck. I know. This was one where like the death count was so high and yet there was a part of me that was just like, I mean, I'm kind of with the tiger on this one. I kind of, it's kind of badass. I'm not going to lie. And especially since like killing tigers was such a fucking thing just to be like, look at this rug. Yes. You know, if I was living my tiger life and I was seeing that shit, I'd be like, yeah, I'm taking all you motherfuckers down. You're not even going to know. <laughs> I'm going to succeed where my brethren failed, pieces of shit. Yeah. I also have a soft spot for tigers. Same. They were my favorite animal growing up. And my first email address, I'm super embarrassed to admit, was 
white underscore tiger 789 at yahoo.com. Oh, yep. I love you. All my binders had like tigers on them. I was obsessed. Were they Lisa Frank tigers? Yes. Oh, my God. Of course. Yes, of Of course. course. Because Lisa Frank is a fucking gift to humanity. Like, I miss it so much. Absolutely. Yes. So she would travel great distances between villages after every kill, as much as 20 miles a day and usually at night. During the day, she would prowl around the villages, stalking men and women alike for her next meal. Although most of her victims were young women and children who often went into the forest to collect firewood, feed livestock, and gather resources for craft work. The English government sent bounty hunters to no avail, and police and army troops were once again enlisted to capture her. But as she continued to evade capture and fear mounted, the tiger became a source of embarrassment for English officials. Then, in 1907, Charles Henry Berthoud, the deputy commissioner of Nine Needle, paid a visit to his friend Jim Corbett and asked him for his help in dealing with the killer tiger. Jim Corbett was the son of an Irish postmaster who'd settled in the region, and he had been born and raised in the hills of Kumaon. After his father died when he was five and left his mother to care for 12 children by herself, Corbett began hunting at a young age to provide food for his family. He spent his formative years tracking alongside the indigenous hunters in the jungles and killed his first leopard at age 10. He became known far and wide as a master tracker and an expert marksman, and his courage and stamina were legendary. He often trekked through the hills at an exhausting pace, eating nothing for days at a stretch. But he was also something of a curiosity. He was just as comfortable trekking through the jungle as he was playing bridge at high tea. And apparently, Corbett could imitate the grunts of a leopard and the chuffing of a tiger so accurately that it would send a collective shiver through a dinner party. Which sounds like a pretty cool party trick for that time, I'm not going to lie. I mean, yeah. When he was asked to help with the Chumpawit tiger, Corbett, who apparently hadn't killed a single tiger up until this point, accepted. He's like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. But on two conditions that all the other hunting parties be called off, and that the bounty on the tiger be withdrawn, because he didn't want to do it for money. The British officials agreed, and Corbett began his pursuit in the village of Polly, where the tiger's most recent victim had been found. Five days later, a breathless runner arrived to report that a woman had been ripped from a tree while gathering leaves to feed cattle in a town 60 miles away. Corbett immediately set out with a team of six locals in tow. After a few days' hike, he arrived in the town the kill had taken place in to find the villagers unwilling to leave their homes and, as he later described, quote, in the state of abject terror, end quote. Corbett spent days searching for the tiger from dawn to dusk, but the trail had gone cold. The villagers suggested that he head for the nearby village of Chumpawet, where many of the attacks had taken place. And sure enough, soon after he arrived, a 16-year-old girl who was out collecting firewood was killed and dragged into the forest. Corbett followed the trail of fresh blood to a ravine where he found her skirt, bone splinters, and finally her severed leg still trickling warm blood. I know. I can't imagine having this job. No. No, thank you. Mm -mm. Shortly after, he came face to face with the tiger for the first time. It immediately charged at him and Corbett fired a shot at it. But the expert marksman missed And, spooked by the gunshot, the tiger fled into the forest. So Corbett was forced to return to the village empty-handed. 
The next morning, he put together a team of 300 volunteers with the help of the local Tesseldar, or land revenue officer, and ordered the volunteers to form a line to rake the ravine where the tiger had been seen, firing rifles, pounding drums, and screaming as loud as their lungs would allow to force the tiger out of hiding. As they did, Corbett lay in wait by the mouth of the gorge with his rifle. Disturbed by the loud sounds, the tiger emerged from the bushes, right where he and the Tesseldar were lying in wait. Although Corbett missed his first shot, his second and third hit their target, but were not enough to kill the animal. The tiger, now furious and in a lot of pain, made a dash at Corbett, who, by this time, had run out of bullets in his rifle. Mm. Knowing death was imminent, if he didn't act, he grabbed the shotgun from the Tesseldar and a mere 20 feet away from it, fired the final lethal shot at the tiger. After evading hunters for four years, the Chumpawit tiger's reign of terror was finally over. In that time, she had killed 436 people. Damn. In four years. Wow. Fuck. Insane. Did you ever see the mid-90s Val Kilmore movie, Ghost in the Darkness? No, I don't believe so. So it's kind of very similar. It's like a fictionalized account of like two man-eating lions in Kenya were like attacking and killing all of these construction workers like who were like making these railroads. And then like Val Kilmer was like brought in to like hunt these fucking lions. Sploosh. Love it. I know, right? It's a very similar – like initially I was like, is this what this is? But then I was like, no, that, that was lions in Africa and we're tigers in India. Different. <laughs> I'm intrigued by this. Maybe they'll have to check that out. Yeah. The ghost in the darkness. The ghost in the darkness. Yeah. Spooky. I saw it. I can't tell you if it was any good, though, because I was a child. It was 1996. <laughs> I love that you remember the exact year. That's amazing. Yeah. I looked it up. I was like, I think it was like, oh, like okay. 1996. Then I looked it up. I was like, oh, yeah, it was 1996. I got it. Okay. When they examined the tiger after her death, they found that the upper and lower canine teeth on her right side had been broken. The upper one in half and the lower one right down to the bone. Corbett determined that this was most likely an injury from a previous gunshot wound, and believed that it had prevented her from hunting her natural prey, which is why she had started to hunt humans. Oh! Yep. Humans ruin everything. They really do. So you did kind of call this in the beginning. Yep. Other than her teeth, she was in healthy condition physically and was between 10 and 12 years old. For the villagers, a celebration followed, and the tiger was paraded through the surrounding villages. Corbett, although relieved the man-eater had been brought down, was also shaken by the killing of a tiger, because again, he'd never killed one before this, and decided to skip the celebration, instead heading home with his trophy, the skin of the tiger, rolled up and strapped to his saddle. Dane Hucklebridge, the author of No Beast So Fierce, described the tiger as, quote, the most prolific serial killer of human life the world has ever seen, end quote. And to this day, she holds a Guinness World Record for the tiger with the greatest number of confirmed kills. Fuck yeah. Although, apparently records from India have reported that there was another tiger who claimed some 700 victims sometime during the 20th century. I looked it up. I could not find any more information on this. Uh Which you would imagine if 700 people died, you would know a little bit about it. Yeah. But the Chumpawit tiger and the man-eaters that followed were not an incident of nature gone awry. They were instead a man-made disaster. 
it was the inevitable result of not only trophy hunting, which caused the wild tiger population to plummet, but also of colonialism and the environmental destruction that almost universally follows in its wake. In the years after he dispatched the Chumpawit tiger, Corbett became seen as something of a celebrity and went on to hunt down many more man-eaters, most of which had similar stories, a previous human-inflicted injury that left them unable to hunt their usual prey. What the fuck? This is why we can't have nice things, people. I mean, we fucking ruin everything. What the fuck? We ruin everything. Facts. He killed his final tiger, known as the Thok Maneater, in 1938 at the age of 63, which, damn, that's kind of impressive. I mean, yeah. He finally exchanged his rifle for a camera. Disturbed by the decline in the wild tiger population over the years, four of the former nine subspecies of tigers are extinct in the wild as of this point. Corbett went on to become the animal's most dedicated conservationist and spent the last two decades of his life lobbying for their protection. He helped establish the Haley National Park in Kuma'an, India's first national park, which was renamed after Corbett in 1957. The Indian government eventually banned all tiger hunting in 1972, which... That's way too recent. Yeah. Seems a little late in the game for that. Yeah. Now, when Johnny first told me about this story, he said that the Chumpawit tigers started killing humans out of revenge for being shot by a hunter when it was young, and that tigers are one of the few animals that are capable of slash understand the concept of revenge. Fuck yeah. And I was like, that's interesting. But also, is that true? So I immediately looked into it, which led me to another fascinating story about a killer tiger. But before we get into that, here's the answer that I found. Malini Suchak, an associate professor of animal behavior, ecology, and conservation at Canisius College, said, quote, I have no doubt that many animals engage in reciprocity, which mm. we usually think of as you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And reciprocity can also extend to negative acts. But reciprocity of negative actions isn't precisely the same thing as revenge, which to me has a component of moral justification, end quote. She goes on to explain that while it's clear that other species have their own moral codes and systems, it's not really accurate to apply the idea of revenge to other species because it assumes their moral systems are the same as ours and that they view the same things we do as right or wrong. She gives the example of someone going on vacation and coming back to find that their cat, quote unquote, revenge peed on their bed, <laughs> which I'm sure some of you have experienced. Oh, yeah. But that implies the cat knew it was wrong to pee on the bed, but did it anyway to get back at them They for fucking leaving. do. Shut the – I'm sorry. That person has never had a cat before. They absolutely <laughs> fucking do. They absolutely fucking do. I had friends who were staying here for a few weeks and they were staying at a friend's apartment at, while the friends were away. And the people that the apartment that they're staying at, they have a cat who, like, the cat doesn't give a fuck. Her name's Tina. After Tina Turner, she's an icon. She fucking knows it. She doesn't give a fuck. I love it. They had to hand make a special kitty litter box because the cat was like, fuck you. I'm not going to fucking go in this shit. Fuck you. And literally, as the people were getting ready to leave, they have their bags, the rolly bags. It's like four in the morning. They're at the door ready to leave. The cat watches them looks them in the fucking eyeballs and takes a dump on the floor next to the fucking kitty litter to be like, fuck you, you're leaving me? Now you got to clean this shit up. Cats absolutely know what the fuck they're doing. Don't fucking tell me that they don't. You've never had a cat. 
if you say that they don't know what they're doing. That's savage. Yeah. But consider it's far more likely that the cat is just extremely stressed out about the change in environment and that its actions are merely a response to the stress. She said, quote, I think it could actually be harmful to the way we treat other animals to assume that their acts constitute revenge when they are likely viewing the situation very differently, end quote. Sure. Both things can be true. It could be like, I'm stressed out because I know that like cats, like they bury their poop so that bigger predators can't smell them. Yes. So when they don't bury their poop, it's them being like, you don't fucking scare me, motherfucker. I run this shit. <laughs> That's a fucking fact. I know you're not going to hunt me. It's fine. I also believe that. You're like, you want to come for me, bitch? I'm not even going to bury my shit. Literally. Fuck you. I poop on the floor. Thank you. Fuck you. I got it. I think it could be both things. It could be like, I'm so mad. Like, I'm stressed and I'm doing this. Yes. Agreed. You're going to find out, Amy. (laughs) God, I hope not. I hope not. He's been lovely so far. Sure. Famous last words. (laughs) He did get a little overzealous with my water cup earlier, and I thought of you immediately because we talked about how you know cats who knock things off, and I was like, no, we're not doing that. Spritz him in the face. But then he left it alone. I told him no. Okay, cool. I usually like blow in his nose a little bit, and that kind of like startles him enough that he's like, okay, I didn't like that. And I'm like, correct. Please don't do that. I didn't like that. So, however... According to Vladimir Dinitz, an adjunct lecturer in zoology at Keene University whose research focuses on animal behavior, the answer is yes. Quote, in humans, revenge is usually an irrational manifestation of our innate desire for justice, Mm -hmm. which is also observed in many other primates and has evolved to enable social cooperation. End quote. According to him, both chimps and another primate, macaques, have been known to engage in revenge with macaques even going so far as to attack a relative of the offender if the offender is much stronger than them. Yeah. Peter Judge, professor of animal behavior and psychology and director of the animal behavior program at Bucknell University, further explained that if one macaque family gets into a fight with another, pretty much all the family members will join in and help. Although he said it's not very common, it happens more than you'd expect. This phenomenon has also been seen in spotted hyenas. It should be noted that these acts of quote-unquote revenge, however, usually take place shortly after the attack. So they're not spending an extended period of time plotting revenge on their enemies, which does kind of seem to support the reciprocity theory. Dinitz also pointed out that there are many documented cases of wounded animals chasing or ambushing their hunters in situations when it would be more reasonable for those animals to run away or hide. Which brings us to our next story. Now, for this story, we're traveling to Russia's Far East, which is the most biodiverse region in all of Russia. There, subarctic animals such as caribou and wolves mingle with tigers and other subtropical species. The tigers that reside in this region are commonly referred to as Siberian tigers, but are officially known as the Amur tiger. John Valent, author of the book The Tiger, described them as, quote, a creature that has the agility and appetite of the cat and the mass of an industrial refrigerator, end quote. Damn. Which I loved. They can weigh over 500 pounds and can literally jump over a basketball hoop. Shit. (laughs) Yeah. When the author asked a famous tiger biologist how high a tiger can jump while researching his book, their answer was apparently, quote, 
as high as it needs to, end quote, which is terrifying to think of. Although tigers are at the top of the food chain in this region and have no natural enemies, the only thing they have to fear is poachers. Because virtually every part of a tiger is considered valuable in traditional Chinese medicine. They believe the tonics made from the parts can cure everything from skin diseases and arthritis to malaria and meningitis. Because of this, and even though the Chinese government banned the trade and use of tiger parts in 1993, there is still a huge demand from China for tigers, and Russian poachers can make a lot of money killing the animals. Although they risk penalties and steep fines, because the Soviet Union banned tiger hunting in 1947, the promise of big money was appealing to those struggling to support their families and put food on the table, attracting even those who wouldn't ordinarily consider breaking the law, which was how former beekeeper Vladimir Markov found himself in the illegal poaching trade. Although he didn't have the best weapons or even the proper clothes that would have shielded him from the frigid temperatures, and instead of proper footwear that would have protected his toes, had only rubber boots, Markov was determined to provide for his family. One day in 1997, while making his way home through the frozen forest with his hunting dog, Markov came upon the remains of a recent kill that had been left by an Amur tiger. Exhausted from trekking through the snow and freezing in temperatures so cold that saliva freezes before it hits the ground, Markov acted on impulse and did the unthinkable. He stole some of the tiger's kill. And unfortunately for him, the tiger showed up shortly after. Oof. Before the angry animal could attack, Markov shot it with its rifle. Roaring in pain, the wounded tiger turned and ran back into the woods. Thrilled by this unexpected victory, Markov continued on his way, believing the tiger would eventually die from its wounds, and when it did, he would be able to claim its carcass for a nice profit. No, bitch. Short-lived. Enjoy that victory while you can. It's gonna fuck your life up. Yep. Monique, it's like you fucking know. Hey, man, I had cats for like 13 years, something like that. They will fuck your life. I mean, I had great cats. I did not have like, they didn't throw shit or anything, but they will fuck your life up if they want to. Oh, yeah. No problem. And that's not a 500-pound cat. No, that's what I'm saying. Teeny tied again. Yeah. These were fucking orange tabbies. Like, they don't, but yeah. they're like, I will fuck your life up. Everyone will be found dead in this fucking house with the doors locked from the inside and no one will know what the fuck happened. <laughs> Death by cat. Yep. Absolutely. But the tiger survived and after briefly nursing its wounds, proceeded to follow Markov's scent through the forest. It beat him back to his own hunting cabin, broke inside, and began methodically destroying all of his meager possessions. Oh, anything that had its attacker's scent on it. Yep. Shit. This tiger is not fucking around. Love it. The tiger then dragged his mattress outside, stretched out on it, and laid there patiently waiting for him to return. That's cat shit, though. That's what I'm fucking saying. Yep. They're not, like, going to be sly about it. They're like, no, I want you to know. It's like that shit in Game of Thrones, like, you tell Cersei it was me. That's a fucking cat. That's a fucking tiger being like, I want you to know it was me. A hundred percent. This was not someone stealing your shit. I want you to I want you to look my fucking eyeballs and know it was fucking me. <laughs> How can you not fuck with a cat? They're so great. Fuck. Yeah. How dare you steal my kill and then try to shoot me? That's rude. This is what you get. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I have no problem with any of this happening. Shouldn't have been a dick. Just saying. <laughs> Again, this is just nature, guys. Like- Circle of life. Yes. Yep. It moves us all. 
And sometimes it moves us into an early grave. <laughs> but that's your, your bad. That's your doing. Yeah, that's on you. You knew the risks. You know? And this tiger waited there anywhere from 12 to 24 hours. I love it. Markov finally returned, unaware of the danger lying in wait. The tiger attacked before he even realized what was happening. After killing his dog, the tiger grabbed Markov, dragged him into the snow behind the cabin, and tore him limb from limb. When Markov's body was finally found, all that remained of him was his head, which the tiger apparently appeared to have treated like a chew toy. Dan was probably like, I want everyone to know. I want all these motherfuckers to know it was this guy. Yeah. This guy who did it. Keeping his head. Just so you know. Don't steal my fucking food. It's like louder for people in the back. Just yeah. so you know. <laughs> Don't fuck with me. Days later, the same tiger claimed another victim, a young former soldier named Andrei Plachepnia. Armed with a rusty bolt-action rifle, he stood no chance as the tiger quickly overpowered him, leaving behind only his blood-soaked clothing, boots, watch, and his crucifix. The tiger then began stalking a nearby settlement, sparking panic and chaos. Russian authorities organized a hunt for the animal, and Yuri Trush, the head of the local squad of an anti-poaching unit known as Inspection Tiger, which, sign me up, that sounds badass, <laughs> was now tasked with hunting the very same animal he usually worked to protect. When the group of hunters he was leading finally encountered the tiger, Trush barely survived its attack, but his colleagues managed to shoot and kill it. They discovered the Amur tiger was a male, measuring over nine feet long and weighing around 500 pounds. Damn. Valent said the interesting thing about the tiger's attack on Markov was that it wasn't an impulsive response. Quote, the tiger was able to hold this idea over a period of time, end quote. He also believes the eating of his attacker was secondary, saying, quote, I think he killed him because he had a bone to pick, end quote. Yeah. Although tigers and human beings are hunting for the same prey in the same territory, they don't usually have conflicts. But according to Valent, if you make the mistake of attacking a tiger, you will regret it. Mm -hmm. And those are my two rogue stories about man-eating tigers. Amy, I fucking love them so much. I love them so much. Right? Team tiger, all the way. Team Tiger, I'm kind of with you on that. The 436 confirmed kills one is like a little hard to get behind because that's like a lot of human death. Sure. I mean, when it's like kids and shit, I mean, you know. This is nature. But also, shouldn't have shot the tiger in the mouth because then it couldn't fucking have like water buffalo and shit. Yeah. The same. Exactly. But yeah, Johnny told me about this and I was like, I am so weirdly deeply fascinated by this and i know monique would be too and like i'm super into cats lately so let's fucking do yeah, it i mean i love it i loved everything about those stories yes cats fucking revenge hard yeah they will make it known if they are displeased after the second story like a hundred fucking percent this tiger yeah. was like you fucked with the wrong marie and that's fucking <laughs> goddamn right no. that goddamn no. right the pulling the bed out and laying on it and just like casually waiting for him to show up, like that's a boss move. I fucking love it. Yeah, that's catch it. I'm sorry, dogs don't do that. A hundred percent. So yeah, besides you know poaching being illegal, there wasn't too much crime in this story, but um, a lot of death. I fucking loved it. No notes. Good. It was amazing. I loved it. 
I knew you would. I knew you would be deeply intrigued by this. Okay, I'm smiling. Team Tiger. You are smiling. We're Sorry. both smiling. It's Way too off. much for this much death. But again, this is nature. Don't fuck with the tiger. Yeah. Sometimes you're not the top of the food chain when it really comes down to it. Yeah. We're the top of the food chain because they allow it. Yep. There's a, a line from a movie, The Quick and the Dead, from the early 90s, that like Gene Hackman's like the bad guy. It's like a Western movie. And he's like, the only reason you guys live to see the dawn of another day is because I allow it. That's a fucking tiger. 100%. They're allowing it. Show some motherfucking respect. Yes. If not, they'll fuck your life up. Yeah. And again, I don't really feel too bad because we have basically killed most of the tigers that were wild. Yeah. Yeah. There's literally five of the nine species that were in existence because we literally killed the rest to extinction. So, yeah. So, yeah, people are trash and tigers are kind of badass. I'm not going to lie. Yep. That is the official stance of uh, another fucking horror <laughs> podcast. <laughs> people are trash and tigers are amazing. <laughs> Sold. I'm get behind that in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I loved your story. Thank you so much. I love ghosties. I love a good gothic horror yeah. in a British manner. Yeah. Amazing. Loved it. And we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy and that's lobot period Amy. You should also follow the show on the gram at another fucking horror podcast. Every sixth episode, which I believe is episode after next, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read you your true crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. And if you like the show, tell a friend, tell two friends. And most importantly, if you haven't yet, please leave us a review. It really helps us get more visibility so that we can get more listeners and then hopefully we can do this full time sooner rather than later. Guys, we're so fucking obsessed with you. As always, keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.